Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in the book of Job. Overall, the book is this struggle that Job has because he's perfect and these bad things happen to him. And the frame is chapters 1 and 2 and also chapters 42, verses 7 to the end. The poem is essentially chapter 3 to 42, verse 6. Now, let me be clear what we mean by the frame. Can you picture you're looking at a beautiful portrait on the wall, and there's a frame around the edge of that? That's what we mean by frame. The first two chapters, the very last part of the last chapter, that's the frame of Job. And that's the one that says, yeah, bad things happen, but it's going to get better. It's going to go away, and your blessings in the end are going to be great. That's that frame message. And then what we call the poem is kind of the inner portrait. It's the lengthy debate within the inner chapters about pain and its relationship in mortality. And I think there's a unique balance between the frame and the poem. For some people, the frame message is exactly what they need to hear. And then there are others, and there are other situations where the frame promises don't come, and the pain lasts a lot longer, and we begin to ask deeper questions, and that's when we move into the poem. Yeah, and I think the typical thing we do in the church is we teach the frame. But this podcast, one of the purposes of this is to kind of allow us to navigate the complexities and look at this from different angles and look at these different viewpoints to try to see what Job is saying, but also to look at this through the lens of the gospel. Because I think the gospel of Jesus Christ really does help make things plainer. And the book of Job has a perspective that is in conflict with itself. Yeah. And so this is not a simple book of scripture. It can bring great comfort to people, and it can bring great pain to people. But if you walk around and interview the average member of the church, they will tell you that the book of Job is about never questioning God when you're in pain, and that in the end, your pain goes away, and your blessings are multiplied, and your blessings are so great that you don't remember the pain. Most people would say that's the story of Job, and they're right. That story is there. And it's very powerfully taught. If you boil the book of Job down to the first two chapters and the last chapter, that's the message you're going to get. I think in the church, because we're limited with time, you got 45 minutes to teach us in Sunday school. That's really what you're going to focus on. Also, because it kind of matches our expectations, what we want the book of Job to say. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what the Lord does to Joseph Smith when Joseph was in pain. Joseph needed to hear that message. And so the Lord quotes the story of Job to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. But sometimes we actually cause harm when we're trying to comfort. Sometimes people in pain don't want to hear that things will just get better. Sometimes what people need is us just to sit down in their grief with them. And so when you look at the inner chapters of the book, you get a very, very different story because Job does shake his hands at heaven and say, where are you, God? You're not doing what you're supposed to do. Just like Joseph Smith says, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth the hiding place? And so we do need to deal with that reality. 
The fact that gross evil exists in this world is challenging to those that believe in God. Many atheists and agnostics have wrestled with the problem of evil. The Book of Mormon wrestles with this. Bryce, would you say that the Book of Job is wrestling with this idea? It is. Yeah. And it doesn't even come to a conclusion. It doesn't answer the question in a way that we all kind of end up cheery and bright and happy. It doesn't solve the problem. And so the poem is struggling with this, and the frame puts a bow on it and makes everything pretty. So Bryce and I are acknowledging both worldviews in the same book. And so allow us to share those different messages in hopes that something will resonate with you and the message that you need to hear. I am open to the poem and the frame actually being perfect just how they are in this tension. And I think Joseph Smith can add some light to this. He says, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. And to me, if there's anything that's contrary, it's the frame and the poem of Job. Brigham Young put it this way, all facts are proved and made manifest by examining their opposite. And so what if, and I don't know, but there are scholars that get into the weeds on this and say that the frame was written by the Deuteronomistic historian, and someone later came along and said, I don't like this, and they added the poem in, and then they got stitched together. There's those arguments. But what if the same person wrote both? Like, I'm okay with this. And I love that it's contradictory, that even though the frame says Job never sinned, he never spoke out against God, he never complained, he does complain. Now, I'm going to draw from a couple of scholars that I really appreciate that have helped me in my quest of understanding Job a little bit better. And one of them is an author by the name of Michael Austin, and he wrote a book called Rereading Job, Understanding the Ancient World's Greatest Poem. He's a Latter-day Saint. This book's published by Greg Coford Books. I highly recommend it. And another scholar that we're going to quote here is also a Latter-day Saint, and his name is Mac Sterling. And he wrote an article for Interpreter called Job and LDS Reading. Both of these are excellent. I highly recommend them, especially if you're someone who wants to geek out and understand more about what's going on in the text. I can't recommend them enough. And so there's this really great quote by Michael Austin where he says this. He says, the much-lauded patience of Job ends with chapter 2, after which Job complains almost constantly about God. The phrase, quote, the patience of Job, end quote, has become idiomatic among people who've never actually read the book of Job. And so he says, religious materials often collaborate to reinforce this reading by ignoring virtually all of the poem and focusing just on the lessons of the frame. This ensures that the book of Job says the sorts of things that the Bible stories are supposed to say. It tells us to worship God in good times and bad, and it warns us against forsaking God and sinning with our lips. It gives us a great example of a man who loses everything and he remains steadfast, and who is rewarded in the end for his patience and faith. It allows us to comfort, but really to criticize, those who are complaining about something in their own lives with the allegedly cheery thought that, well, at least they're not as bad off as Job. And so Michael Austin really works to say, hey, we need to read both. We need to read the poem and we need to read the frame. But I'm talking about this because the Book of Mormon is so, in my opinion, so much more clear, but I love the Book of Job. And by the way, also as members of the audience, we are told in the very first verse that Job was a perfect man and upright, and he feared God and he stayed away from evil. 
And that assumption, that very first verse, plays through the entire book. Job is, the word is Tom, or he's complete, he's perfect. The Greek would be the teleos, or the teleoi. He is literally one of the perfected ones. Job is in this state of perfection, and his friends, their assumption through the entire book is Job you must have done something wrong because these bad things are happening. And Job just shakes his fist and says to his friends, you guys don't understand. I am perfect. And so I think verse one is there on purpose because this internal part, chapters three through 42, verse six, the poem is in contradiction to the frame. In essence, what the poem is saying is, Job is perfect. And yet these bad things are happening. And the assumptions of his friends that he must have done something wrong. Those assumptions are wrong. And Job does speak against God. And so we have parts in the frame where it says, you know, Job never said anything against God. And yet throughout the poem, he does. And so the book almost fights against itself. That's the dilemma is some people need to hear one message and some people need to hear another message. And that our journey through mortality is complicated, is in no way meant to be a simple thing, and we're not all the same. And how we wrestle with that problem of pain, why do good people suffer and why do bad people seem to not suffer the way they should? C.S. Lewis struggled with that whole concept. Yeah. And there was an author by the name of Harold Kushner, and he wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he said this, quote, the problem of evil is considered by many to be the ultimate test of any theological system, end quote. I think that's very well said, Mike. So let's start with what we call the frame. Okay. The frame of the book of Job begins with this perfect fellow named Job, and he's from this place called Uz. And he has seven sons and three daughters. And then verse three says he has a bunch of stuff. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household. In fact, he was the greatest of all the men in the East. So you may want to make a note of what he had because he's about to lose it. My take on verse three is I think the author is using hyperbole to really put Job in this extreme position of everything's awesome. For example, I don't think anybody in this life is perfect. And I think that the gospel kind of shows us this. So we're kind of getting this hypothetical situation of this perfect person that has all this stuff. But in this context, we have the ha Satan or this diabolos, the accuser is going to come among the sons of God, and he's going to present himself before the Lord and basically give a wager. Now, we typically, as Latter-day Saints, read this as Satan coming to God. I think from the perspective of the ancient Near East author, the Ha-Satan was like the eyes of the king. If Bryce was the king of a land, he would have the Ha-Satan, or the eyes of the king or the accuser, go out and make sure people are keeping the rules. And so I think if we read it that way, it's going to make a lot more sense than if we try to have this dialogue between God and Satan. I've had a lot of people over the years say, why would God even have this conversation? Why would this bet even occur? So we kind of got to relax our eyes and read this through an ancient Near Eastern lens that this is the Lord, and one of the B'nai Elohim, one of the sons of God, is coming and saying, okay, I found this guy. Let's really see if he's legit. The only reason he's perfect is that you've cushioned him. You've made his life so comfortable. Of course he's going to be perfect. And so if you do these things to him, then he will, quote, curse thee to thy face. That's verse 11. But the Lord said, in verse 12, all that he has is in thy power, only don't touch him. And so verse 13 through 15 talks about the death of his children. And then verse 16 
talks about the fire of God burning up his animals, and that's also in verse 17. And then finally, a wind from the wilderness in the 19th verse fell upon the young men. These are his servants in 19. And then we find in verse 20 that Job arose and he rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell upon the ground. And then he makes this beautiful statement. He says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So then we get to the second chapter. This is still in the frame. We read that the Satan or the accuser comes to the Lord and says, well, you know what? Okay, maybe he's not cursing you now, but if you allow me to touch him. Pain will cause him to curse. Yep. And that's what verse four is saying. Skin for skin, all that he has, he will give for his life. In other words, you let me give him pain. And he will quote, verse five, curse thee to thy face. And so the Lord said, verse 6, behold, he's in thine hand, but don't kill him. And so verse 7 of chapter 2, he gets boils and he's scraping himself with them. And his wife even says, curse God and die. And the author says in verse 10, and all this did not Job sin with his lips. So Job loses all of his possessions and his children, and yet he's faithful. He understands, hey, God gave, God took away. He's faithful to God. He's holding fast to his integrity, and he's in pain. And he says to his wife, what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did Job sin not with his lips. We've talked about that many times, that like Job, we need to trust Heavenly Father that he knows what's best. So we talk about being faithful in tribulation. And we need to not do like the Lamanites did and feel wronged and get wrath and hate and hurt and turn against God. We need to be like Nephi, like Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, where we're taught this will only last a brief moment. And then the last part of the frame, if you jump all the way to chapter 42, the way this story ends is the blessings that come into his life and replace the pain. Now, It may not come in this life, but it will come. The very last chapter in verse 10, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then in verse 12, it says, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. He started off with 7,000 sheep. Now he has 14,000. He started off with 3,000 camels. Now he has 6,000. He started off with 500 yoke of oxen, now he has a thousand. He started off with 500 she asses, now he has a thousand. And he again has seven more sons and seven more daughters. And they're the most beautiful daughters in all the land. And that Job lived 140 years after the blessings come into his life, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. Now, I believe the spirit of that message is still true, and there are people who need to hear that message, that we have a God of three scoops of ice cream who turns pain into joy, and that in the end, the blessings we receive will work back in time and turn the pain into joy. You know, Bryce, I think you've even talked to people, and I know I have, when they're in the midst of the pain, they still have moments where they feel the Holy Ghost with them. I just had a conversation yesterday with a friend who's going through a horrible thing, and he said to me how many times he's felt the Spirit 
help him and temper his nature so that he can get through this time period. And I've had that as well. So even in the midst of your Liberty Jail experience, there can be moments of peace and there can be moments when it's easier, but you're still in the prison. Like we see this in even Abinadi, where Abinadi's countenance has changed. He's still in shackles, but he's the free man. And King Noah, who isn't in shackles, is in bondage. Or we see this in the story of Mosiah with Alma the elder and the converts, where their burdens were made light, but they're still in bondage. So that principle does hold true. The Lord will be with us in our affliction. Peace be unto thy soul. I love that truth. God will be with us in our trials. They won't last forever. And that's usually as far as we take the book of Job. That's kind of the frame. Be faithful in tribulation. Don't curse God. Understand his purposes in this pain and know that someday, somewhere, in some capacity, the blessings of his goodness will be so great that they will work back in time and turn all of our past pains into happiness and joy. I believe that with all my heart. Now, that being said, we now turn our attention to what we now call is the poem. It's basically chapter 3 to the first part of chapter 42. It's everything else in between. It's what most people don't read. Most people read the first two and the last, and they don't read the bulk of it. We actually put a slide in here of a Reese's peanut butter cup, and doing the frame is like licking the chocolate and not eating the peanut butter cup. And so eat the whole thing, right? Yeah. I don't want to diminish. We believe the framework. We believe it. But sometimes it's not what people need to hear. Sometimes people in pain don't want to hear that things will just get better and that eventually all my pain will go away. And some people actually are misled in thinking that because they're not dealing with the reality of the situation in front of them. And so let's take a look at the poem. Let's look at some of the struggles that Job goes through. Job asks a very piercing question right off the bat, and that is, why are we born into a life of pain? Why even be born? when pain is part of our mortal existence. And people have been debating that for millennia. The problem of pain is a real challenge. Yeah. This is chapter 3, verse 2. Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. And then later in chapter 3, verse 10, Job says, Because it shut not the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes, why died I not from the womb? In essence, he's saying, I wish I was never born. And I think there are times when people are in that much pain, they do ask those kinds of questions. I think the book of Job is really introducing this character that is in extremes. He's extreme on one end and that he's perfect and that he has all this wealth. The enemies of him are hedged. We read that the hedge is torn away. So he has this hedge around him. Everything's awesome. And then he's at the other end. He's extremely in pain that he wishes he was never born. And don't we all kind of have moments like that? Joseph seems to begin that whole comforting message in Liberty Jail with a pounding of the fist and a shaking it at heaven and saying, oh God, where art thou? I think if you read that whole letter and you hear his words, Joseph is angry and he is frustrated. And we all have those moments and they're part of our mortal existence. Yeah. 
I want to briefly talk about some of Job's complaints. I think these are important, and I think that they're worth reading. We're not going to do all of them. We put some of these in the show notes and in the slides for you. In chapter 7, Job complains. Verse 15, he says, So that my soul chooseth strangling and death rather than my life, I loathe it. I loathe my life. I would not live always. Let me alone, for my days are vanity. We'll talk about that idea when we get to Ecclesiastes, what vanity is, but essentially vapor. My life is like nothing. Go to chapter 10, verse 1. My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. So we get this idea that Job is really struggling. This is not like I've had a bad day. This is not I've lost my job. This is brutal. I mean, his whole family, all of his children are gone. And this isn't the first time we've seen that, right? We saw that with Elijah. We saw that with Moses. We've seen this before. Maybe not to this degree, but we've seen this. I'm really in a low here. I'm really struggling. It's it's brutal. I want to really hone in on verse 7. We actually give you a couple translations of verse 7 in the slides. I'm going to read Robert Alter's translation, then I'm going to give you mine. So this is Alter's translation of 19.7. So it's not exactly the same in the King James. Look, I scream outrage. I am not answered. I shout and there is no justice. Okay, here's mine. I'm, I'm going to take that first bit. Usually it's hene, but here it's hain. It's uh, my translation of that front end is dude and with exclamation point. So here it is. Dude, I cry out for help due to violence as Hamas, and I'm not answered. I cry out and there is still no mishpat. Mishpat is justice or fairness. In Judaism, mishpat or a justly ordered society is the foundational value of Judaism. I would call mishpat the foundational value of the cosmos. So what is Job saying in verse 7? He's basically crying out and saying, hey, due to Hamas or due to violence, I cry out to God and he is not a just God. He is, he's not keeping his end of the deal. And I think if you are suffering or if you've been through the ringer, you've probably cried this out before and said, Lord, I did everything you said I was supposed to do and this isn't working out. Where's the justice? Where's the fairness? I think, in essence, you could just take Job 19.7 and just write that up on the board and say, that's his argument. Uh, He also says this. This is uh, chapter 19, verse 6, and then 8 through 10. So I'm kind of giving you the surrounding verses to give it context. And this is Robert Alter's translation. Job says, Know that God has undone me and encircled me with his net. My path he blocked, and I cannot pass. And my ways he has set darkness. My glory he has stripped from me, and he took the crown from off my head. He shattered me on all sides. I am gone. He uprooted my hope like a tree. I mean, that's his argument. It's not fair. Now, there's so many more. We put them in the slides. So then his three friends are going to come to, quote, comfort him. And so chapters 3 through 27 are what are called the wisdom dialogues. That's essentially where Job has three friends. He has Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they each give three speeches, and then Job gives a response. So chapter three is Job's initial speech. Chapters four and five are Eliphaz, his first speech against Job, and then Job gives a response. And then Bildad gives a speech, and then Job gives a response. And then Zophar gives a speech, and Job responds. And this happens three times. So it's like 
wash, rinse, repeat three times. Interestingly enough, Zophar does not give a third speech. So at the conclusion of Job's response to Bildad, then we get the 28th chapter of Job, which is a hymn to wisdom. And then Job gives a final speech in 29 through 31. And then in in chapter 32 to 37, we're introduced to this new character named Elihu. And Elihu, I believe, is playing the role of an accuser. And he's going to throw some accusations at Job. And then finally, God speaks to Job. Job is able to come into the presence of God. And chapters 38 through 42, verse 6, is God's response to Job's question. And then at the end of verse 6, we get into the frame. And the frame ends with everything is awesome and everything's doubled. And Job lives a long time. And so in this podcast, we will refer to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar as Job's comforters or his friends. And the irony is they're not offering a lot of comfort. So I think it's important to know that throughout the dialogues with his three friends, every time they come up with an answer for why he shouldn't complain, he counter moves. He gives a counter argument and they're valid arguments. And so I'm just acknowledging both sides. Like his friends are going to say, well, Job, you need to pray harder. And his, his response is going to be, guys, I'm praying and it's not working. Well, his friends or these comforters as they are, give Job arguments that we hear a lot in church. And I think they're valid arguments. I think we should do these things. We should pray in those kinds of things. This is what Michael Austin says. He says, the first comforter, Eliphaz, takes his role seriously. He does not, at least initially, suggest that Job suffers because he sinned. Rather, Eliphaz says everything that he can to try to make Job feel better, but his suggestions fall flat. In chapter four, verses three and four, he says, Job, follow your own advice. And then in verse six and seven, he says, trust God. And then in chapter four, verse 17 through 19, he essentially says, hey, listen, Job, nobody's perfect. He's kind of hinting, Job, you're not really perfect, bro. Kind of come clean and tell us what you're doing wrong. He says in chapter five, verses two through five, Job, keep calm and carry on. And then in the next couple verses, hey, Job, everybody suffers. Have you ever talked to somebody before where you're suffering and they say, please, like my brother-in-law had that. And you know what? He got through it. In chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he tells Job to pray. And then in the 17th verse of Job 5, he says, God is testing you, Job, because he loves you so much. And then finally, at the end of chapter 5, he says, it's all going to be okay. They sound a lot like the suggestions we would maybe call Sunday school answers. These are the sorts of answers that one might give about a theoretical person's suffering. Yes, Mr. Brown, I know that you've had a bad day with all of your children dying and everything, but try to remember that your Heavenly Father loves you. But these answers do not respond in any significant way to Job's real suffering. And how could they? Now, those are all true statements. We should trust God. We should keep calm. Everyone does suffer. We should pray. And is everything going to be okay? I think in the gospel perspective, with the resurrection and the atonement, yes. But does that really help? It may not help today. It may not. But yet it may. And so there's this complexity here. And so Michael Austin says, Eliphaz fails to see the irony in his own remarks. He still sees Job's suffering abstractly enough to read from a script. What does the script say? Quote, things to say when somebody is suffering, end quote. He doesn't know how to engage with Job as a real suffering human being. Now, to me, there really is a powerful verse that I think we can take into our lives and apply. I think this is really the key. Job 2, 13. 
So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. I think we can take verse 13 and say, there's some wisdom here on how to apply this. We try so hard to explain away pain, and maybe sometimes we just need to sit with them in it. I I think that's that simple. I think it's okay to say, oh my goodness, this is really hard. And then don't talk about yourself or don't talk about your cousin who had the same thing or don't say, oh, it's going to be okay. Sometimes you just say, this is hard. Notice how the Book of Mormon words, uh, we mourn with those who mourn. We mourn with them. It's like Jesus when Lazarus dies and Martha and Mary are suffering and he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows he's going to bring him back. He knows there's a resurrection in the end of the world, and yet he weeps with them. Sometimes what people need is us just to sit down in their grief with them. And sometimes when people are in pain, they don't need an explanation. They don't need you going through the checklist of all the things we are supposed to say to people in pain. And which is why I love this verse so much, is sometimes we actually cause harm when we're trying to comfort, because what they really want is in verse 13. Yes. I I do want to talk about Job's barbed response to Eliphaz. So I'm going to quote chapter 6, verse 15 through 18. I'm going to read the Robert Alter translation. After Eliphaz gives his response about all the typical Sunday school answers, hey, pray harder, Job, just trust God. Just keep going. This is Job's response. He says, my brothers betrayed like a wadi, like the channel of brooks that run dry. They are dark from the ice snow heaped upon them. When they warm, they are gone. In the heat, they melt from their place. The paths that go on are winding. They mount in the void and are lost. Sometimes maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt like the counsel from someone, or maybe you heard a talk where someone gave you advice and it just melted away. Or the advice they gave you just caused you to be more lost. I know I felt that way. There have been times in my life where I've just been troubled and I thought, okay, this isn't making sense. And yet at the same time, Eliphaz is right. We should trust God. Mike, when my mom lost her son, my brother died when he was 12 and I was 16. My mom told me that there were a lot of well-intending people who wanted to comfort her But what they said to her was more hurtful than comforting. I worry that sometimes we do the same thing. We don't know what to say, and sometimes we say the wrong things. Sometimes we say at least. You know, someone has cancer, we say, well, at least it's this kind of cancer and not that kind of cancer. Could be worse. Yeah, or you lost one son, but you know what? You still have five sons. Like, that doesn't really... Or we quote the poem that I was sad that I didn't have any shoes until I met a man that didn't have any feet. And that may not be comforting yeah. to people. That's tough. So much of the religious orthodoxy that comes from the Deuteronomist historian is being pushed against by the author of Job. And so Austin makes this point where he says, the Job poet ultimately insists that being a good friend is more important than holding firmly to religious orthodoxy. And then he says, This, I believe, is the poem's most consequential critique of the Deuteronomist. Deuteronomy tells us that we must reject, 
often by stoning them, friends and family members who stray from the faith. It leaves no room for loving people when we think they are wrong. The Job poet dared to critique and dismantle the most powerful religious orthodoxy of his culture by confronting it with a set of facts that it could not accommodate. But beyond refuting this one particular orthodoxy, the poet demonstrated for us in excruciating detail how rigid orthodoxies of any kind can cause us to renounce both overwhelming evidence and basic human decency before abandoning our most cherished beliefs. The most profound readings of Job, I believe, recognize that the poem is really not just about suffering or retribution or God or Satan or knowing that our Redeemer lives, but it's about how rigid orthodoxies can destroy our relationships and thereby our humanity. You see, Job's friends were so stuck in this rigid orthodox view of suffering and how it's tied into sin that they failed to look at Job. And then when Michael Austin says this, I'm, I'm like, this is, this is hitting the nail on the head. Under the law, with its jealous and demanding God, all bonds of family and friendships must be sacrificed to ideology when a conflict between them occurs. This aspect of the Deuteronomistic religion would eventually become the focus of the intense critique that we now call the Sermon on the Mount. There and elsewhere, Jesus argued that we cannot separate our relationship with other people from our relationship with God. Human beings matter, even if they are women taken in adultery, or prodigal sons, or members of foreign tribes, all of whom, according to the book of Deuteronomy, had to be put to death. But Jesus begged to differ. See Matthew 25, 40. This was perhaps the most important theme of Jesus's earthly ministry. And I just think that just nails it on the head. And not only that, Mike, but I think that spreads broadly among the church. I remember hearing Elder Ballard say the following, and this has nothing to do with comforting people in pain, but it sure is related to that same concept. He said, occasionally we find some who become so energetic in their church service that their lives become unbalanced. They start believing that the programs they administer are more important than the people they serve. They complicate their service with needless frills and embellishments that occupy too much time, cost too much money, and sap too much energy. One of the most important things we do through the gospel of Jesus Christ is to build people. Properly serving others requires effort to understand them as individuals, their personalities, their strengths, their concerns, their hopes and dreams, so that the correct help and support can be provided. Frankly, it's much easier to just manage programs than it is to understand and truly serve people. Our goal should always be to use the programs of the church as a means to lift, encourage, assist, teach, love, and perfect people. Programs are tools. Their management and staffing must not take priority over the needs of the people they are designed to bless and to serve. I think sometimes someone's suffering and I take the doctrines and we bang them over the head with the doctrine rather than loving the person and asking them how we could help them and sitting with them in their pain and just being there. That's kind of how I read John 8. I just see Jesus sitting with this woman. Yeah. Now, let me jump to four ideas that we can hold on to when the frame doesn't comfort us and we're dealing with pain in a darker and a much more painful way. 
sometimes in that moment of pain, you don't want to be hurt. Hey, everything's going to be okay. And just so, keep praying and keep reading yeah. your scriptures. And yeah. So I want to present four ideas that we can hold on to in those darker moments when we're really struggling with the problem of pain. So allow me to just point out a couple of those little rays of truth that come up in the book of Job, not necessarily from Job, but come up in the book of Job that maybe you can hold on to in your pain. And also be okay with the idea that the book of Job, when read in isolation, is going to contradict some of the stuff Bryce is going to say. Bryce is going to look at the whole landscape of the gospel of Jesus Christ I'm going to get into the weeds of what's the book of Job saying, and sometimes they don't match up. Because know that the Bible itself fights against itself, just like the poem and the frame are in contradistinction at certain points. And so, like Bryce said, they don't always come from Job. Sometimes they're coming from his, quote-unquote, comforters. Right. The first one, I'm going to start with something that Eliphaz says to Job in an attempt to comfort him. Eliphaz in chapter 5 says in verse 11 something that I find very significant. He says, to set up on high those that be low, that those which mourn may be exalted to safety. In other words, because you're low, God can take you high. Now, I believe that one of the not so clearly stated principles of the gospel, but certainly hinted at, is the idea that your ability to feel joy is in direct connection to the pain that you've experienced. Without feeling pain, you are limited in your capacity to feel joy. I think one of the best places that is taught is in Lehi's summary of the plan of salvation given in Jacob chapter 2. He's talking about the Garden of Eden, which was clearly a perfect environment. But notice their ability to go high was limited by the fact that they couldn't go low. So in describing Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it says in verse 23, this is 2 Nephi 2, 23, they would have had no children, wherefore they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. Therefore, I think one of the hints and the gems of the gospel that we need to bring into this conversation that Job is having with his friends, and the problem of pain is that your capacity for joy grows because you experience pain. Jesus is said to have, let's read it, Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verse 6, Jesus is said to have ascended up on high as also he descended below all things. Now, notice what it says next, in that he comprehended all things. In other words, without going down low, he wouldn't be capable of going above all things. His capacity for joy was broadened because he went as low as he did. And in comprehending everything in between, everything from the high to the low, he became the light of truth. And we can never grow in that light 
if we don't spread that distance between the high and the low. I love how Joseph Smith said it in the Liberty Jail letter. He said this, thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity, thou must commune with God. He seems to be suggesting that God is doing something really good in your pain. I know you can't see it. And I I know you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And maybe it doesn't come anytime soon or even in this life. But the reality is your capacity for joy is growing because of the pain you're experiencing. So maybe a better translation of what Eliphaz says next. In verse 17, the text is, happy is the man whom God corrected. That's a harsh way to say it. But maybe what he's saying is, capable of greater joy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore, there's reason to have hope. Let's do another one. Number two, all throughout this book, I think there's acknowledgement that God is doing something here, and that it's great, and I don't see it. Remember how C.S. Lewis talked about the cottage? You thought you were going to be a cottage, and he needed to fix a small thing here and a small thing there. And the Lord comes in and tears out entire wings and puts on another floor. The idea is sometimes we don't understand all the good things that God is trying to do. And I think that's confirmed in the book of Revelation. Do you remember in Revelation that the Lord had a book in his hand? The father sat on his throne and he held a book in his hand. And the Lord told Joseph Smith that that book contains all the works of God, all the things that he's doing in the lives of his children. Now, you can imagine how massive that book is. Why does this person struggle with cancer? Why was that person born with a deformity? Why all the pain that human beings have suffered? What's God doing in the life of each individual person? That's written in that book. But the problem is the book was sealed. And none of us can read it. The only person who could read the book is the Savior who can tear those seals off. Therefore, we have to accept the reality that God is doing something great that I can't see and I don't understand, but I need to trust him. I need to trust that that he's doing something. Now, there's a lot of hints in the book of Job that kind of hint at that. For example, in chapter 7, verse 17, what is man that thou shouldest magnify him and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him? and that thou shouldest visit him every morning and try him every moment. See, there's that understanding like, Lord, I don't understand this. And why are you doing it? I don't know. But there's that acknowledgement that God is doing something great. In chapter 9, Job says in verse 2, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. Verse 12, he says, Who can say unto him, what doest thou? Who could possibly understand what God is doing 
in my life. I don't see broad enough to understand why the pain in my life is going to be a blessing. But that underlining truth is that God is doing something great. And in 11 verse 7, he says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? In other words, it's not possible for us as mortals to understand what he's doing. Second Nephi 26 verse 24 says, He doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world, for he loveth the world. Now, I don't see how what he's doing today is for my benefit. So there's the element of faith and trust. But the essence of the gospel seems to be suggesting that God is doing something great. And when we don't see it, we need to trust it. And that's where Job's going to go. Jump all the way to chapter 13, verse 15, is this little hope. Now, again, Job's all over the place. Sometimes he's really angry and sometimes he's very hopeful. But this is one of those moments where he says, though he slay me, Yet will I trust in him. In chapter 23, he'll say it this way. Verse 10. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Even though clearly Job can't see it today. In the very end of the book in chapter 42, Job, after all of his moments of despair and anger and hope, Job says the following. Chapter 42, verse 3. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I truly believe that if you could open up that book in God's hand and read your story, you would say things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Now, also... This chapter, chapter 42, is after the revelatory experience that Job has with God. So after he crosses through the veil and he talks with God, he says this. In the King James, it's going to read a little bit different from this other translation we're going to give, the Jansen translation, and we are going to link in the show notes for those of you that are grammar nerds and want to get into the grammatical construction of why it is translated this way. I think this is a better translation. We read this in verse 6 in the Jansen translation. It goes as follows, quote, I recant and change my mind concerning dust and ashes, end quote. That's a radically different meaning than we read in the King James. Instead of saying, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, essentially what Job is saying is saying, I'm changing my view concerning dust and ashes. Well, what does that mean? What are dust and ashes? That is mortal man. Mortal man is dust and ashes. And so one way to read verse 6 is after his revelatory experience with God, where God asks Job certain questions that he cannot answer, Job sees himself as a mortal, as dust and ashes, from a different perspective. I think this lines up with what Bryce is talking about, that God is doing something great. And what if one of those things that God is doing is for us to see ourselves differently? I think that is the essence of verse 6, and I think it falls in line with what Bryce is talking about here. So let me add a third one, Mike. Um, As they debate this challenge, this problem of pain in the book of Job, as they talk about why do bad things happen to perfect men like Job? 
Why is he suffering? There's that hint from the beginning that if you do good, good things happen to you. If you do bad, bad things happen to you. Well, why do bad things happen to good people who haven't done bad? Job's comforters are saying you must have done something bad if these bad things are happening to you. And even in Jesus's day, when they pass a man born blind, the disciples say, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But the problem with that is people who do bad quite often prosper. And so they debate that quite a bit in this book. It says in the chapter heading of 21, Job admits that the wicked sometimes prosper in this life. Now look at the chapter heading of chapter 24. Murderers, adulterers, those who oppress the poor, the wicked people in general, often go unpunished for a little while. So that's part of the problem, is why do bad things happen to good people, and why do good things happen to bad people? Do you remember the list we made in the book of Deuteronomy, where if you obey, all these wonderful things happen to you, and if you disobey, all these bad things happen to you? And by the way, chapter 28, the first 14 verses are all the blessings. If you're good, these good things will happen. And then from verse 15 to the end, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, verse 68, the bulk of Deuteronomy 28 are the cursings, the things that will happen that are bad if you choose bad. And it's pretty graphic. And I really do think, Bryce, that the author of the poem is confronting that view. We're going to call it the Deuteronomistic Assumptions or the ideology of the Deuteronomist, which is if you do good, good things happen. If you do bad, bad things happen. And the the bulk of the poem is pushing against that idea. And the three friends of Job that keep asking him questions and making accusations are saying, Job, just admit it. You're a sinner. Just admit it. You're wrong. And God is good because if God was good and if you're good, this wouldn't be happening. And God can't be bad. So Job, it's on you. And Job pushes against that. That's the bulk of what's going on in the dialogues between Job and his friends. And I think if you're teaching this in a gospel setting, you'd want to pick snippets from these conversations. You can't teach in one hour all of chapter 3 to the end of 27. There's just not enough time. So what you would want to do is pick some parts where Job gives a response and then his friends respond and then he responds back. So here's number three on our list. The third truth that the gospel gives us that we need to hold on to when we're in that problem of pain. And that message is this. Answers do not often come in this life. In 1985, Boyd K. Packer gave a tremendous talk in a fireside to young people called The Play and the Plan. He said the following. The course of our mortal life from birth to death conforms to eternal law and follows a plan described in the revelations as the great plan of happiness. The one idea, the one truth I would inject into your minds is this. There are three parts to the plan. You are in the second or the middle part. The one in which you will be tested by temptation, by trial, perhaps by tragedy. Understand that, and you will be better able to make sense of life and to resist the disease of doubt and despair and depression. The plan of redemption with its three divisions might be likened to a grand three-act play. Act one is entitled Premortal Life. The scriptures describe it as our first estate. Act two, from birth to the time of resurrection, 
is the second estate. And Act 3 is called life after death or eternal life. In mortality, we are like actors who enter a theater just as the curtain goes up on the second act. We have missed Act 1. The production has many plots and subplots that interweave, making it difficult to figure out who relates to whom and what relates to what, who are the heroes and who are the villains. It is further complicated because we are not just spectators, we are members of the cast on stage in the middle of it all. I love that analogy. There are things happening in Act 2 that don't make sense that seem to contradict our natural assumptions about God and fairness. And sometimes we shake our fists at heaven and say, how dare you? Because we want resolution in act two. We want everything to make sense in act two. But that is not the plan of which we are participating. It is a three-act play. And resolution quite often doesn't come until act three. So yes, Sometimes some very inexplicable things happen in Act 2. Maybe they were related to Act 1, but know and trust that they will be resolved in Act 3. God wrote a glorious play, and your part in it ends gloriously. Remember that scripture I quoted earlier, He doesn't do anything save it be for the benefit of the world and each and every one of us, because he loves each and every one of us. So hold on to that reality, that resolution doesn't often come in act two, but come it will. And in the middle of the darkness of act two, when we don't see any good coming out of this situation, trust the resolution that will come in act three. There are hints. I know Job isn't necessarily preaching the gospel of an afterlife, but he does address resurrection. And if a man die, will he live again? And we pick up those little hints and we teach yes, and that maybe the answers won't come until Jesus opens up that book and breaks those seals. Now that leads us to the fourth one, the grand one. The only way this works is if there's someone who makes right all the wrongs. And that is the very reason we need a Redeemer. Redemption is more than just redemption from sin. It also includes redemption from pain. It is my testimony, and it is taught throughout the Scriptures, that Jesus will overcome all of the injustices. Elder Richard L. Evans stated it beautifully in 1952. Some of the ponderable problems, the unanswered questions, the seeming injustices and discrepancies and uncertainties, which we often have a difficult time in reconciling, will find answer and solution and satisfaction if we are patient and prayerful and willing to wait. Part of them are the price we pay for our agency. We pay a great price for agency in this world, but it is worth the price we pay. So long as men have their agency, there will be temporary injustices and discrepancies and some seemingly inexplicable things, which ultimately in our Father's own time and purpose will be reconciled and made right. That is the purpose of a Redeemer, 
to make those things right. I very much appreciate that verse in Alma chapter 14. While Alma and Amulek are watching the women and the children burn in the fire, I can't imagine watching that scene and hearing the screaming of women and children. Amulek, in despair, turns to Alma and says, We have the priesthood. Why don't we stop this? Why doesn't God stop this pain? Why does he allow good people to hurt? Why does he not punish the bad people when they do bad things? And I think Alma answers that beautifully in Alma chapter 14, verse 11. Let's start with the bad people. He says, He doth suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them, according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them in the last day. Resolutions coming in Act 3. But why doesn't he stop the pain? Alma says, The Spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand. For behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. We have a Redeemer. And I think we all need to understand that redemption isn't just from sin. We are also redeemed from pain. And that, I testify, will be complete and that he will redeem us from pain and receive us unto himself and make right. Remember those verses from the Lord in Doctrine and Covenants 58, 3 and 4. You cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Wherefore the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. It is my witness to all of you as you struggle with the problem of pain that we have a Redeemer and that he will make right all the pain that we go through. It's interesting that this is in all the standard works. You've mentioned Alma 14. You've got the New Testament where the Son of Man on the cross cries out to his Father, have you forsaken me? You've got in the Pearl of Great Price, the daughters of Oneida. You've got in the Doctrine and Covenants, the saints being cast out of Missouri. I like the solution at the very end of the Book of Mormon, Moroni 10, 34, which is really in line with this other passage that you just read, where Moroni says, I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite, and I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge of both quick and dead. You see, the very last verse of the Book of Mormon, it invokes this idea that things will be made right. And you know, I find it noteworthy that there are many times in the scriptures that evil is challenged. Rarely does evil go unchecked in the scriptures. It's as if the Lord is asking us as Latter-day Saints to stand up and be counted, for us to step up to the plate and to be the good that we seek in the world. Instead of crying out, why is there evil? Maybe we could ask ourselves, okay, what am I going to do about it? In the case of Alma 14, we need to not forget Zeezrom, 
as well as Alma and Amulek standing and taking a stand for truth. Remember, Zeezrom was on the wrong side, but then he switched teams and became one to stand up for truth. And so it's a good exercise to think of times when evil seems to be victorious and ask yourself this question. Can I think of people in these situations that stood up for what was right and actually did something? And I think that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is inviting us to do. Instead of shaking our fist at God and blaming him, we could stop and ask ourselves, okay, what am I going to do about it? I think that's another way to look at it. But I think it's interesting, Bryce, that in pretty much all the standard works, the problem of evil is addressed but it's not always answered the way we want it to be answered. But I think what it's doing is it's inviting us to have a conversation and to consider some of these things. Yep. So finishing out number four on my list, we turn to what might be the most famous verse in Job's middle section. In chapter 19, verse 25 and 26, he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the last day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I love that he calls him his redeemer. And that there is someone who will redeem us from all of that pain. I know that my redeemer liveth, and he will redeem me. He'll redeem me from sin He'll redeem me from loneliness. He'll redeem me from despair and anxiety. He will redeem me from pain. I like that. I think that's important. Now, scholars that look at Job 19, what they're seeing is that this is a Gaal or a fixer or a redeemer that's coming and that will come and testify to Job's friends that Job is perfect. This person is going to come and show these friends, these accusers, or the comforters, as they're called, that Job is actually in the right. And Job is sticking to his gun, saying, I've done nothing wrong. I'm good. These bad things are happening. And the friends are all saying, Job, you just need to repent, man. You just need to you know, come clean. Tell us what you're doing. Tell us what, you know, the things that you've done wrong and come clean because God would not allow this. And Job is like, Mm-mm, no, no way, man. The avenger or the gall, he's going to come and fix it. That's the way it's read in the text. And I see later Christians reading this and saying, oh my goodness, this is Jesus. And I run with that. I'm with Bryce on this, although that's not probably what the text meant at the time this was written, which we can get into that. Like, when was this written? We think, we don't know, but we think this was written during the time of the Deuteronomist historian. And remember, the Deuteronomist point of view is, why did the temple get destroyed? We were bad. And if we were just good enough, if we just kept the law, then these bad things wouldn't have happened. And the author of the poem part of Job is saying, "Mm, I don't think so. That answer is just too simple, and that is not fixing it because we have Job. He was perfect. These bad things happened. God would not do this. Well, the author of the poem is saying, well, God is doing this. And we're we're led into the conversation at the front end of the frame where the Hasetan, the accuser, comes to God and says, let me have him. And God lets him have him. And Job gets it and these horrible things happen. So I think there's some complexity here, but I like both readings. I just want to acknowledge both readings as they stand. We struggle with that, don't we, Mike? I remember I lived near the Ochre Mountain Temple, and when it was under construction, lightning struck Moroni and damaged it. And it really bothered a lot of people that the Lord would allow the temple to be struck by lightning. And I thought, that's funny that we have that assumption, that holy places like temples should be free from lightning and bad things happening. And the Lord says, why? 
My son wasn't free from that. My children aren't free from that. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints wasn't free from that. Who is? That's not the way things are. But we have that assumption, don't we, that lightning should not strike the temple. Yeah, only people that despise their bodies and do horrible things get heart attacks or strokes. And that's just not true. There are healthy people that have heart attacks and strokes, and sometimes there is no explanation. And I think that's what the poem's really wrestling with. Bryce, I love that. I really like those four things. I think those are wonderful. I think I appreciate your approach where you take the totality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you take the book of Job, and you say, okay, what are some things we can pull out of this? And then in the 28th chapter in Job, there's this hymn to wisdom. And so we're going to go to a place where Job can gain wisdom. Go to verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living. The depth saith, it is not in me, and the sea saith, it is not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold, neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or the sapphire. The gold and the crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be had for jewels of fine gold. I think, in essence, the argument of the 28th chapter is, okay, we've had these dialogues. We haven't really settled anything. What we really need is wisdom. If any of you lack it, let him ask of God. My take from a sowed reading of this text, which is a temple reading of the text, is that after all of this discussion, we're going to go to a place where Job can gain wisdom. We're going to come to the tree. So after that hymn to wisdom, we get chapters 29 through 31, and this is Job's final speech. And then after his speech, we have this character named Elihu, and he's going to come in, I would say, in the realm of the accuser, and he's going to make some accusations before Job comes to God. And so after the speeches of Elihu, which take place in the 32nd to the 37th chapter, God responds and he speaks to Job. And in chapter 38, he starts to ask questions that Job himself cannot answer. And he says things like this, verse four, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who has stretched the line upon? In other words, can you measure the cosmos, Job? Like it's just so much bigger than we can comprehend. And it's just riddled with stars. And God is basically saying, do you even know what this is, Job? And he says in verse seven, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, were you there? Do you understand this? These are beautiful questions. And then we get into some really enigmatic passages and I want to address them. And so go to chapter 40 and in verses 15 to the end, we talk about one creature. It's going to be called Behemoth. And then in the 41st chapter, we're going to talk about Leviathan. And these two creatures are cosmic mythic creatures of the ancient Near East. And if you carefully look at chapter 40, verses 15 through 24, we have strong images of fertility. And God is essentially saying, I have the power to control that force. And if you think about that force of fertility, how powerful it is. Note that this behemoth has the virile strength in his belly, the sinew of his thighs, and his tail. And this is Michael Austin saying this. He says, behemoth is the primal life force that gives people the energy to do things and to have an impact on the lives of people for good or ill. 
Thousands of years after Job, there would be a man by the name of Sigmund Freud, and he would call this the id and the eros. In other words, this powerful life force that is in all of us, God says he can control it. In fact, in the text, it says that it is, quote, contained. The translator Robert Alter is going to call this hedged, or Michael Austin is going to translate this as embowered. And what the King James translation says is this, verse 22, the shady trees cover him with their shadow, the willows of the brook compass him about. In other words, verse 22, God is saying that he has hedged in the power of the life force that is in all things, this power of fertility. And so that's what the behemoth is, this personification of this beast. Some look at this as the hippopotamus, this mighty, powerful beast. We actually put a picture of it in the slides for you. The other one is the Leviathan. I'm going to call that Tiamat or the great sea monster that's part of the creation narratives. We talked a lot about the Mesopotamian and the Canaanite god, this violent character that is a dragon or a sea dragon. And notice what the Lord says in verse one, can you, Job, draw out Leviathan with a hook? Can you catch this mighty sea monster? Can you put a hook into his nose? And then I love verse five, can you play with him like a bird and bind him for little girls? or for thy maidens. In other words, God calls this mighty sea monster, which in the ancient Near Eastern myth, whether it's Tiamat or Leviathan or Rahab, this mighty sea dragon that's part of this creation of the cosmos, can you play with it like a little bird? And of course the answer is no. Like Job is like, there's just no way I can't do it. And God is saying, I know Job, you can't like just sit down and stop telling me how to do my thing and how to run the universe. Job, I think I got this. I think that's going to be okay. And so the poet is asking interesting questions like, how can I keep from being miserable in a universe that I can't predict? Or why do the ideological structures that we create to help us understand the cosmos end up preventing us from acting effectively in it? Or another question the poet is asking us is, what is my moral responsibility to other people who I believe that they're wrong? but they desperately need my help. They desperately need my love. Those are powerful questions. Have you ever sat with somebody where in your mind you're thinking, well, if you didn't do this, this, and this, you wouldn't be in this problem. That's not what they need to hear. What they need is for you to sit with them and be with them. Now, I think another way to read this, and this is coming from uh, Max Sterling, he is inviting us to think about this from a temple perspective. And so he quotes Hugh Nibley, where he says that the Testament of Job lays special emphasis on temple ordinances. In other words, yes, it's talking about suffering. Yes, it's talking about evil. But what if this is also talking about our journey back to the celestial kingdom? Now, this reading that Max Sterling gives us of the book of Job as the book of Job being a journey, leaving this place where everything's perfect, going into this state of pain and suffering and death and then coming into God's presence is a beautiful way to read the book of Job. I think it's a beautiful Latter-day Saint perspective, and I think it removes some of the complexities and some of the troubling things that Job leaves us with at times. Now, there's this extra-biblical book called The Testament of Job. We don't have The Testament of Job here, but we'll link it in the show notes. And in this testament, we read, that Job talks to his three virgin daughters and seven sons, and he asks them to make a circle around him. And the second one of his sons' name is Horos, which is the word for circle. And in the text, it says, quote, make a circle around me, and I will demonstrate to you the things which the Lord has expounded to me, 
for I am your father, Job, and I am faithful in all things. Job is faithful in all things. In fact, that's even Job's name. You see, one way to read Job's name is, where is the divine father? And another way to read it, and I think most translators are going to go with this, is Job can mean the persecuted one. And so both of those kind of work. He's the persecuted one in the sense that his friends are persecuting him. They're telling him he's wrong, and they're telling him that he needs to repent of his sin, and he needs to get right with God. And Job's like, listen, I'm, I'm right with God. And then the other meaning of his name is, where is the divine father? And so what if that's the point of the whole book of Job, is that he's going on this journey to come into the father's presence? What if it's both? And then it mentions that he's from this place called Uz, and it literally is the word for counsel or plan. I mean, so if you look at that, we have this man who, whose name means, where is the divine father or the persecuted one? And he's from this place called Uz. And this is all Job chapter one, verse one. And then it talks about this hedge that is around him and everything's perfect. And so Max Sterling essentially says, well, what if Job represents this person that's in this hedged place, this wooded place, or the garden, the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve were, and he's hedged in? In other words, everything's perfect. And really, that's what's going on in his life. Everything is working out until it isn't, until the hedge is torn down. And that's really what the Satan says to the Lord in the first part of Job, where he says, well, let me tear down his hedge, and then we'll see how he's doing. And so what if the story of Job is this journey leaving the garden, the wooded place, the place of ooze, and it's this person asking, where is the divine father? I'm seeking messengers from my father. Now we have in the slides a picture of this cathedral in France, and it's got this labyrinth headed towards what I would call the Holy of Holies, headed towards the altar at the end of the church. And on this labyrinth, the center of it is a tree. And what if that represents our journey, our journey to God is this labyrinth that we have to go through. And so Satan goes out from God and Job's hedge begins to collapse. We also read that Job proclaims that he's naked. That's Job 1.21, very similar to Genesis 2.25. Job, as were Adam and Eve, are naked. And then they go to a dreary waste. You see, Job removes himself to solitude, to an ash dump, resigning himself to a dreary waste. Compare that to 1 Nephi 8, 4 through 7. While describing his state in terms of bitterness, that's Job 7, 11 and 9, 18, and darkness, that's Job 16, 16, Job has thus gone through a kind of a fall. He's gone to bitterness, to darkness, and in essence, he even says in one point, my crown has been taken from me. Job has thus gone through a kind of a fall. And it's brought about in some sense by the machinations of Satan. But what if it's also the initiative of God? What if God's okay with him going through this? And so when we look directly at Job's suffering, it's caused either by the sins of other humans or natural disasters, but it's all exacerbated by Job's relative ignorance. You see, such suffering which Job experiences to an extreme degree is part and parcel of his life in this risky world. And so what if the book isn't primarily about suffering, but it's about the journey? And so the questions that are then taken up by Job as a result of his suffering, as he's driven to wonder what everything means and why the innocent suffer, 
and what God's relationship is to him and to justice, in this journey, Job is proved and he's tried at God's initiative. What if that's part of it? Just like it says in Abraham 3, 24 and 25, we will go down for there is space there. We'll take of these materials and we'll make an earth whereon these may dwell and we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. What if this is a journey and his losing the hedge is kind of a passing through a veil as it were? And so he comes into a new stage of existence. Now in the text, Max Sterling identifies five occasions where Job invokes self-imprecations or curses against himself if he has not been or will not be true to his oath of innocence. He says, quote, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. That's Job 31, 21 and 22. In other words, he goes through these five curses where in the course of this journey, Job begins to learn about himself. And then in the 32nd through the 37th chapter, Elihu is this type of an accuser or a diabolos. And so Sterling makes the argument that after Job's final speech in 29 through 31, Elihu is like this one last person that's approaching him as Job's approaching the veil and coming to God's presence as an accuser. And he's trying to throw Job off his quest to come to God. In three places, Elihu is revealed as a possible accuser. The first is in Job 36, verse 26, where he says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. In other words, we can't know him. The second is in Job 37, where he says, We cannot draw up our case to God because of darkness. That's Job 37, 19, and 20. And then finally, in Job 37, 22, and 23, we read, quote, God is clothed with terrible majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power and justice. And so, right towards the end of the book of Job, as Job's approaching the veil and coming to God's presence, Elihu is trying to throw Job off his quest to come to God. And then, in the 38th chapter, God finally answers Job. In essence, when he approaches God, God's greatness in these chapters is so overpowering to Job that he stands before him and realizes, I am nothing. And he loses all of the accusatory tone towards God, and Job just stands in awe. So all God does is to deny Job's charges of dark purpose and indifference and to ask Job these kinds of questions. Who are you, Job? Where were you, Job? And are you able to answer these questions? And on the face of it, these questions are rhetorical, to which the real and proper answer is simply, I am nothing. I was not there, and I am not able. Finally, when Job penetrates the veil in the 42nd chapter, we read this, and this is Jansen's translation. Verse 2. You know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that obscures design by words without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I have not understood, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make me to know. I have heard you with my own ears, and now my own eyes see you. Therefore, I recant and change my mind concerning dust and ashes. You see, in this context, as he approaches God and he's in his presence, Job rethinks everything. 
Sterling writes, most translations of verse 6 have Job repenting, self-abasingly in dust and ashes. By doing this, these translators align themselves with the friends in suspecting Job of some sin. However, in my view, such translations distort the meaning of the book of Job. Far preferable is Jansen's translation, which has Job changing his mind concerning dust and ashes or concerning mankind. As Jansen says about Job, now all his questions and his charges are dissolved. His structures of understanding are melted down in the presence of God. As Job's transformation to gold is complete, he understands that man's vocation is to take up the divine image through engagement with the partly determinate, partly indeterminate character of the world and the potential for innocent suffering that this implies. Thus, God spoke in the prologue, extending his arm towards Job and has now taken him, a man, Job, out of the crowd for his name. God's covenant grip on Job is now eternal. God has taken him into his presence. And so in the slides, we put this graphic where you can see the prologue on the left. Job only tastes the sweet because there's a hedge around him. But then he's introduced to the lone and dreary world. And then he has to go through an ascent. And those are the dialogues chapters, chapters 3 through 27, where he starts to get revelation. But he's still contending with his friends. And then finally, he leaves them behind, and as he's preparing himself to meet God, an enemy comes to try to convince him that he can't do it, and that's Elihu's speeches in 32 through 37. And then he is answered with God at the veil, and he comes into God's presence, and that's chapters 38 through 42, verse 6. And he goes through these stages, and you could even look at this as stages of faith. The part of the beginning could be, hey, everything's awesome. He's got this hedge. And then everything isn't awesome and everything's undone. And Job begins to question everything. And then he comes to God's presence and he has a nuanced faith now grown and he's gone through struggles and he has a different view. And then when God asks Job some questions that he can't answer, Job has to rethink everything. And he understands God with a new light and he's brought into God's presence. And then that's the conclusion of the poem. And then we get back to the frame. And so Job now considers not just his own suffering, but that of others. His suffering deepened his empathy for other people. And so while Job always cared for the poor and the oppressed, he now feels their suffering in a new and profound and a different way. And so I hope that is useful to you as you study the book of Job. I know it has been for me. I'm very grateful to these thoughtful scholars breaking down Job. I'm grateful to the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its totality that gives us more insight. I think the book of Job can be read simply, but I think one of the goals of this podcast is to really look at the text and ask questions like, you know, why is this there? And how do these books interact with history? These texts came from the pen of authors, poets, and prophets as they worked in their way to interact with God and God interacted with them. And I bear witness that the book of Job has value, and that when read in connection with the revelations of the restoration, it has even more depth and even more value and can be beneficial. Yeah. Now, we recognize that this book is complicated. It's all over the place. It teaches justice and mercy all at the same time. We got people shaking their fists at heaven, and yet those same people are acknowledging the greatness of God. We recognize that all of us struggle with the problem of pain For some people, the frame has the answers, and that's why I do love the frame. For others, 
Maybe it's the poem that has the answers. As you've grappled with the problem of pain, maybe you found that the frame answers just aren't satisfactory. We hope we've helped you see maybe some of the other issues that come up in the poem of Job. We recognize that you are valuable to God and that the story he wrote about your life has highs and lows and ends gloriously. We pray that you will trust him, even though those answers don't come in Act 2. Resolution will come. I love that the Book of Mormon says that in the end, we will all proclaim that God's judgments are just and right and merciful, and every one of us will bow the knee. I know some people will be forced to bow the knee, but I think all of us, when we look at what he did in our life, will bow the knee in gratitude that he knew what he was doing and that we can now see the goodness of his intent and that the joy of his blessings really do work backwards and convert the pain into joy. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we start the book of Psalms. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.